0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in John 14. We may wrap up 14 and cross into John 15 this morning. Of course, I said that last week. (coughs) John 14. I think because we spent so much time laying the groundwork, we'll probably have more classes in John 13 and 14 than we'll have in 15, 16, and 17. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? The Lord does. John 14. The church's greater works require a Trinitarian abiding love. Verses 15 through 24. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you uh, forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also in that day. You will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. So we understand here, this passage helps us, this paragraph here actually helps us to walk in on what we've been saying all this time, starting with chapter 13, when Judas walked out the door. As soon as the door closes in 1331, now is the Son of Man glorified. That from that moment, as soon as the unbeliever is gone, when there's only 11 believing disciples left, Jesus starts to give them the preview of the coming church age. He starts to give them doctrine that they don't have any clue of understanding. They cannot understand anything in red letters here from 13 through 17, not until Pentecost, not until the Holy Spirit descends, not until they're permanently indwelled. It's it's that day. It's that day. But he keeps giving them these messages so that uh, what's the point in teaching something they can't understand tonight? They're going to understand it. They're going to understand it 50 days from now. They're going to understand it. And it's important that once it starts happening, they'll be able to think back and remember this is what he was telling us about. And he's able to tell them before it comes to pass. So, in any event, very powerful portion of the Gospel of John and uh, very um, precious for you and I today. This is, in a lot of ways, it's almost like the, uh, the Declaration of Independence. Here's a metaphor for you. How the, the Declaration of Independence in relationship to the Constitution. The Declaration is not part of the Constitution. The Declaration was written, you know, 13 years ahead of the Constitution. 1776 versus 1789. But what the Declaration of Independence is to the U.S. Constitution, I say this Upper Room Discourse, this Upper Room and Walk to the Garden Discourse is to the epistles of the New Testament. That is, it's not breaking the mystery doctrine but it's a preview and the mystery doctrine when it is unfolded in Paul's epistles when mystery doctrine is unfolded for the church you go back to this upper room discourse and you're able to glean all of these powerful principles from here and have I think very much a, a blessed um, Christian way of life all right does that make sense okay if it made no sense to you then just ignore it and let's pray <laughs> let's pray and start our class today shall we pray Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the truth of your word, for the privilege we have to assemble together. Thank you, Father, for all of your faithfulness, day by day, moment by moment. Your plan unfolds and we we encounter tests and circumstances and sometimes we're caught by surprise. But, Father, you know all things. The end from the beginning. Every test has uh, included within it a created and designed emphasis. Father, uh, open our eyes to your plan that we might endure to the end. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. If you are following in the outline, this is episode 23, the last speech to the apostles and intercessory prayer, the content of chapters 14 through 17. And we've had five points of study. Important that we uh, review everything we learned in chapter 13. The points of study from John 13 should be reviewed before proceeding to chapter 14. And these are the uh, the things that make no sense at all to an Old Testament perspective, but uh, make complete and total sense to a New Testament perspective with mystery doctrine unveiled. Secondly, we got. Uh, let me just skip on through that two, three, four, and five. Let me get down to. Here. We're in point six. Hmm. Then I probably ought to find some different notes. If you say so. My notes disappear when Glenn Carnegie gets up here. There it is. There's point six. Thank you. All right. So if you want just a quick outline on chapter 14, the first doctrine which uniquely applies to the church is the doctrine of the rapture. John fourteen one through 4. And this really illustrates very well what I'm talking about. you got rapture doctrine in 1 Thessalonians 4. you got rapture doctrine in 1 Corinthians 15. you got powerful rapture doctrine in the epistles after the mysteries of the church is unveiled. And knowing that, then you can go back to this upper room discourse and you can see the rapture here very clearly in John 14, verses 1 through 4. Uh, on the night in which he gave this to them, they didn't have a clue. They were clueless. But we can look back with appreciation for the upper room discourse, relating it to the church age. Then we have the second doctrine, which uniquely applies to the church, is the doctrine of greater works. Can't teach that to an Old Testament believer. We're going to do greater works than the Christ. And he talks about this. Greater works will he do because I go to the Father. If you had known me, you would know my Father also. From now on, you have seen him, and uh, you know him and have seen him. And he talks about these greater works. Greater works. Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater than these he will do because I go to the Father. You and I live in the stewardship of greater works. And on the night in which these disciples heard this for the first time, their heads must have been spinning. What do you mean? We're going to do greater works than the Christ? Yes. Greater works than the Christ. He said so right here. Point five. The church's greater works require Trinitarian abiding love. Don't even try to accomplish those greater works if you're not uh, walking in fellowship, if you're not abiding in the love of the Father and the love of the Son. And we're, we have all the things here in 15 through 24 that deal with the uh, Trinitarian abiding love. We have some subpoints points into that, A, B, C, D, and E. And uh, we'll go back to review all that. All right. Then point six. That's where we left off. Thank you. The present message is only going to be understood fully in the coming dispensation of the church. Verses 25 through 31. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. So, uh, understanding what he's saying here, you could almost read between the lines and uh, understand what's not being said here, but... It goes without saying, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, and you have been utterly clueless. (laughs) You are not equipped tonight to understand anything I've been saying since Judas walked out that door. But, don't worry about it. (laughs) Because the Holy Spirit's on His way. And when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. In Christ. In Christ. I understand the power of the church age. I understand the body of redeemed humanity in Jesus' name. understand the privilege we have to offer up every prayer in Jesus' name. The position we have in Christ. An Old Testament believer didn't have any of this. Believers in the Old Testament weren't in Christ. They didn't offer up prayers in Jesus' name. They didn't know the name of Christ until Jesus was uh, incarnate here in his first Advent ministry. All right, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that's said to you. So there's teaching and then there's correlating that has to take place. All right, so here's where we are. Uh, Understand these things is inferior to all things. What would you rather have, an Old Testament theology or? Our theology, which is all things, Old Testament plus New Testament, the New Testament that correlates things out of the Old Testament in ways the Old Testament itself by itself could not teach. You know, you think about it. The Old Testament promises the seed of the woman. But how how complete a doctrine can you give if all you have is Genesis three seed of the woman? Can you teach it better if you also have Isaiah 7, a virgin shall conceive? Can you teach it better if you also have Matthew 2, the virgin did conceive? <laughs> all right. Can you teach it better if you have the whole New Testament to correlate everything from the Old Testament into our under complete understanding? We have the mind of Christ. So these things is inferior to all things and demonstrates the superior nature of the church. Second, later point B, the Holy Spirit is the teacher for the church. Again, staggering. Old Testament saints would have never dreamed of such a thing. Their, their teachers were priests and Levites, and most of them were a bunch of losers. You know, they, they, uh, they were interested in themselves and, and what they could get out of stuff, and they were full of their own pride and trying to outdo one another and become known as glorious teachers and all the rest of this. We have the Holy Spirit as our teacher. And we can be very thankful for that. Teaching is reinforced by reminder for correlation. Teaching is reinforced by reminder for correlation. Now, you've had all these points already. You had them last week. You had them the week before. Why am I giving them to you again? All right. Why am I repeating these points on the slide? Well, because Bob wasn't here last week or the week before, and I want him to get these points. But beyond that, Even if you weren't here last week or the week before. Let's say you were here last week and you weren't here the week before. This is another third time you've heard this. That's all right, because teaching is reinforced by reminder for correlation. And so the more we remind you of these things, the more we review these things, the more that we see, you know what? He will teach you. He will bring you remembrance. There's a difference. I could teach my children something, but if they never remember it ever again... What's the value in it? If I say, well, I taught it to you once, ten years ago. Well, what if I teach it, and then I remind, and I remind, and I remind, and I remind? Is that what it takes? Sometimes it is. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself, because I know I need it. Fourthly, this is where we were last week. We spent our whole (laughs) time last week, basically, After the review, we spent the rest of the hour on point D. The peace of Christ is the great bequest for the church. The peace of Christ is the great bequest for the church. What did the Old Testament know about peace? I mean, there's a lot about shalom, right, in the Proverbs. There's a lot about shalom in the Old Testament. But sadly, it came to be that the only concept of peace was understood in geopolitical terms. The only aspect of peace was thought about if... If we had a king that would whoop up on the enemies and secure borders and keep bad guys out and give us prosperity and blessing and health, wealth, and prosperity here, then we would have shalom, we would have peace. And so looking forward to the coming Prince of Peace, looking forward to the coming Messiah, meant what? Meant a king that's going to whoop up on those Romans and give Israel safe boundaries. So they're looking for political peace. People with bumper stickers today, what are they looking for? In their visualized world peace, what are they looking for? What's Christ offer? He says, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. We realize this is our ongoing possession. I can have this peace. I'm supposed to have this peace Today. All day, all day, every day. Today I have this peace. Tomorrow I have this peace. The next day I have this peace. And then uh, a doctor calls and says, we think you might have something. And does that d- destroy my peace? I still have Christ's peace, don't I? All right. It's not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. When you're enfolded in the peace of Christ, you may not understand it. That's the peace of God that surpasseth all understanding. You may not understand it. That's fine. But the peace of God that surpasseth all understanding guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thank God for that. And so, this is the great bequest for the church. We have this. No Old Testament believer could have it the way we have it. And all the verses there that relate to peace. And I'm not going to go back over them, but it is interesting. Of all the titles that could have been selected for God the Father raising Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep was raised from the dead. And what was it? Was it the God of... Righteousness that raised Him from the dead? Was it the, no, it was the God of peace. When you look at Hebrews 13.20, who was it that brought up the great shepherd of the sheep who brought Him up from the dead? It wasn't the God of war. wasn't the God of righteousness. wasn't the God of love. He is all those things. It wasn't the God whose name is Jealous. We saw that on Sunday. Of all the titles that could have been selected for God the Father in raising Jesus Christ from the dead in Hebrews 13.20, it's the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the, of the sheep. And I like that. I like that a lot. All right, so this is our, this is our uh, bequest. There's a lot of things that we have to wait to get to heaven to enter into our full inheritance, but this one we're not waiting for. This one we have while we're here. This is our present inheritance that we have right here, right now. All right, so let's wrap it up then. Let's look at verses 28 through 31. After we have peace, what comes next? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You have heard. Now here it is. Walking in this peace, we're able to advance, making application in 28-31. You have heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. This is a message that's preparing disciples For how to live the Christian way of life with Jesus gone and not yet back. Jesus is with His Father not yet back. That's the whole church age. Jesus is with His Father. We're waiting to hear a trumpet when He comes back to take us home. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved Me, you would have rejoiced. I pay very close attention to this because this is identical language to something we've already seen early in this chapter. It's called a counterfactual. It's a second class condition. It is not true. It is not true. If it was true, then there would have been different consequences. But since it's not true, you're not seeing those consequences. Not yet. Not until it becomes true is what he's saying here. All right. Let me just read 28 through 31. I'll quit interrupting myself and then we'll go back and give the details. You heard that I said to you, I go away. I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you. For the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. And so they uh, depart the room. And uh, and then the content of chapters 15 through 16, he starts telling them on the true vine and he starts telling them all this stuff. Um, In chapters 15 and 16 is a message he gives while he's walking. They're walking to the garden in chapters 15 and 16. He stops outside the garden. He offers his prayer in chapter 17. And then... He crosses the ravine in chapter 18. He sends eight of those 11 away and he takes three of them into the garden to uh, start praying and and wait for the uh, arresting officers to arrive. So this is where we are. Now, details on this. Point E. Israel could not love Jesus in the way that the church will love Him. Israel could not love Jesus in the way that the church will love him John 14 verses 28 through 31 see the church's greater works require a lot of things they require God to supply this peace they require this love it requires loving one another it requires a lot of these things all right. Jesus' present message will be understood fully in the coming dispensation of the church, including this issue, that they don't love Him. Not in the way that they're going to love Him. Alright, now you could say that John loved Him, right? Wasn't he the disciple whom Jesus loved? Didn't he recline on Jesus' breast? Yes, he did. I don't doubt that he loved Him. But not in the way that the church loves Christ. Israel could not fathom that in their stewardship gentiles couldn 't fathom that in their stewardship angels couldn 't fathom that in their stewardship, not in the way that the church is going to love him okay and, and it 's not their fault <laughs> it 's just the nature of progressive revelation it 's the nature of the unfolding plan of God of the ages it 's the nature it wasn 't the purpose of God for Israel to love for Israel to love Christ the way the church loves Christ. Are you kidding me? It's like the difference between a child's love and an adult's love. There's no capacity for that. A child loves their parents, of course, from the time they're little kids. They they love mommy and daddy because mommy and daddy love them, and mommy and daddy take care of them, and mommy and daddy feed them and protect them and, and everything else. And so a child has capacity to apply the Storgos love within within that context. A child has to grow in order to develop other forms of love. The love, Agapa'o love, and all the rest. What kind of love could Israel have for their Messiah? Right? They're anticipating the coming of Messiah. They need Messiah. Messiah is their Redeemer. Messiah is their King. They have an anticipation of the coming Messiah. But, there's a difference between that and us being the bride of Christ. If I go back to the you know, the love a child has for the parents, I think we all would admit that that's different from the love you have when you leave father and mother and cleave to one another and the two become one flesh. The love of a husband and a wife is different than the love of a child for a parent. I mean, that's just self-evident. And so what's the love that Israel could have for their Messiah? And they were commanded to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. They had that standpoint in the Old Testament. But that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's not the rapport love that we have in the church. The love that we have, that the church uh, Christ has for the church, the church has for Christ. And mature love for Jesus Christ includes three things. A mature love for Jesus Christ includes. Now, I'll give you these, or you can outline them yourself. You'll see them plain as day here. But again, let's back up to verse 28. And I want to uh, highlight some things. You heard. You heard. What's the value in that? <laughs> well, think about the Sermon on the Mount. You heard you know, the ancient said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you. Right so anything that you've heard you have to correlate anything that you've heard you have to make application anything you've heard you have to understand in its completion that's what he's saying here you heard that i said to you you heard but you didn't listen <laughs> understand the difference you heard it but you didn't listen everybody got that right away all right women understand that wives understand that because your husband heard you but was he listening Okay, no. All right. I go away and I will come to you. If you had loved me. Now, understand the construction on this. It's the same thing that we had in verse 7. Right? Peek back to verse 7. If you had known me. These are called counterfactuals. Counterfactuals, right? We use them all the time in daily life. We use them all the time in logic. We use them all the time in our conversations. It's, it's nothing. It's not magical in the text. But we have to identify it in the text for what it is. And we also recognize that when God gives a counterfactual, that he has 100% foreknowledge and certainty pertaining to what would have been had things been different. We can't do that, but God does it all the time. Okay? If you had. If you had known me. The fact is, they don't. They have not known Him. And these are His closest disciples. These are the eleven. This isn't the seventy. This isn't the five thousand that He fed. These are the eleven. They know Him better than anybody else in the world. But they don't know Him the way the church is going to know Him. They don't love Him the way the church is going to love Him. So verse 7 and verse... 28 here are are in parallel, the way they're constructed, the way the syntax of the passage is laid out and the concepts. The only difference being one is knowledge and one is love. But if you had known me, you would have known my father also. Then he says, from now on, from now on. In other words, moving forward into the coming church age. What was not the reality will be the new reality. It'll be the new normal. In the church, you're going to know the father. Likewise, in the church, you're going to love Jesus Christ. And you're going to rejoice once you finally understand the doctrine. In the church, when you have the right doctrinal perspective, you love the fact that Jesus Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. And you wouldn't trade that for anything. Say, well, wouldn't it be better if he was walking the earth and we could travel around like his disciples? We could walk places and, and hear him, you know, eat food that he multiplies. Wouldn't that be cool? All right, yes, there's a coolness factor to it. Yeah. Got that. But not better, no. Not superior, no. We have Jesus Christ seated, victoriously seated at the Father's right hand. Interceding for us. Advocating for us. Not just advocating for us in anticipation of a coming work. Advocating us with the assurance of a completed work. And an eternally satisfied Father that never wants to review that, that uh, sin ever again. Okay? past completed work of Jesus Christ, a victorious Savior, seated at the Father's right hand, exalted, glorified. Wouldn't trade that for the world. Alright, so if you had, if you had known me, if you had loved me, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced they could have rejoiced they could have been happy but when they heard that message i go away and i'm coming back they heard that john 14 message they were not rejoicing that was not a happy message not one of them said woohoo okay you would have rejoiced because i go to the father for the father is greater than i the resources available now here's here's a huge clue too how are we going to do those greater works we were talking about earlier By having the Father involved in our Christian walk, the fact that the Father is the one that's working in and through us for His good pleasure, having a full Trinity to bring to bear in in application. All right, I've told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. What are the three things that uh, a mature love for Jesus Christ includes? And think about how Old Testament didn't have any of these. First of all, a mature love for Jesus Christ includes full awareness of the future. Full awareness of the future. That's verse 29. I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. The unfolding of Scripture, seeing eschatology in our generation, full awareness of the future. Mature love for Jesus Christ includes a full awareness of. Of the future. Remember, he loved his father and he kept his eyes focused on the joy set before him, looking forward to the future. Understand that the most comprehensive eschatology possible, Israel didn't have it. The most comprehensive eschatology possible requires a completed canon of Scripture with the Holy Spirit to teach it. They had an eschatology. Many of their rabbis specialized in it. They had no shortage of debates about it. But it wasn't complete. You can't, In any respect, you cannot say that Isaiah through Malachi is comprehensive. And even before Isaiah through Malachi, there's so many eschatological psalms. There's eschatology in the Pentateuch. So you've got Mosaic eschatology, you've got Davidic eschatology in the Psalms, and you've got Isaiah through Malachi in the Prophets. You say, well, isn't that enough? Isn't that everything? That's it for the Hebrew Scriptures, yes. But you don't have all of it, with Jesus' message in the Mount Olivet Discourse. You don't have the Matthew 13 parables. You don't have the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through if all you have is Isaiah through Malachi, you're missing Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through 7, are you writing this down? Matthew 13 parables, Kingdom of Heaven parables, and all of it discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. Those are huge sections of eschatology that Israel needs to complete the, uh, their Hebrew scriptures. And then, of course, what else beyond that? The Apostle John in Revelation. All right? The Apostle John in Revelation is what ties together Isaiah through Malachi. If you don't have the Apostle John in the Greek uh, Scriptures of the book of Revelation, you cannot tie together Isaiah through Malachi the way that, you, that we can here in the church. So this full awareness of the future. The most comprehensive eschatology possible requires a completed canon of Scripture with the Holy Spirit to teach it. And this full awareness of the future where we have the mind of Christ, where we have the full plan of the Father unfolded from Alpha to Omega. And we realize, you know what? It's not about us. (laughs) It's not about us. Why can we smile at the future? Because it's not about us. Because it's about God the Father who loves His Son. And it's about that love for the Son that's going to exalt Jesus Christ for all eternity. We start to learn that the whole plan of the Father for the ages... Have you read the ABC reader? The plan of God for the ages is because God the Father loves God the Son. Alright? So if you start to understand that, you can join the Father in a mature love for Jesus Christ. A mature love for Jesus Christ, for who He is. Not just a baby love for Jesus Christ. See, I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that most Christians love Jesus Christ like a little kid loves his mommy and daddy. Their only love for Jesus Christ is because Jesus loves me, this I know. Or the Bible tells me so. Jesus died on the cross. I'm saved. I'm not going to go to hell. And so I love Jesus because I'm not going to go to hell. Okay? Am I mocking that? I'm not mocking that. I'm saying build on that. Add to that. Don't stop there. Don't limit your love for Jesus Christ to the the the, the subjective reception of, of redemption. Okay? Start with that. But build on it. Build on it. Don't be uh, so subjective that all you love Him for is what He's done for you. (laughs) Okay? I mean, seriously, is that the kind of love you want? You want your husband to love you because of everything you've done for him? That's a hard road. Okay? That never ends. Do I want my wife to love me only because of the stuff I do for her? Hmm. Well, What if I haven't done much lately? What if I, uh, what if I actually do some terrible things? Oh my goodness! Let's let's develop a mature love that loves with integrity, that loves for the real reason of, of agapao. See, there's the thing. We're supposed to agapao Jesus Christ, and agapao does not take into account the merit of the object. We have a hard time doing that because when we're talking about Jesus, there's a lot of merit there. <laughs> okay but we're commanded to love with the agape love that doesn't take into account the merit. So can we please just forget that He's perfect, forget that He saved us, forget of all that He's done, and love from our own soul, from our own soul maturity, from our own integrity, from our own transformed nature. Can we love like the Father loves? And having a complete eschatology is going to be huge in allowing you to do that. To realize that, yes, there's a coming rapture. After that, there's coming wrath. After that, there's coming kingdom. After that, there's new heavens, new earth. After that, is what? A thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. Maybe I better start loving him right now, <laughs> since that's what the thousand generations is all about. Okay? Tell you, once you wrap your mind around the Father's plan to glorify Christ for all eternity, you can start developing this mature love. You can start developing agapao the way we're supposed to. All right. Second thing: a full awareness of the angelic conflict. <laughs> a full awareness of the angelic conflict. Verse thirty. A mature love for Jesus Christ includes a full awareness of the angelic conflict. Verse thirty. Jesus says, I will not speak much more with you. For the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. I will not speak much more with you. Well, why not? I mean, you're God. Do what you want to do. Take, take, take all the time you want. Well, we're a little bit rushed for time in the moment. We're a little bit, uh, we've we got a little bit of an urgency here. Why? Well, there's soldiers on the way. <laughs> they're going to arrest me. I don't have all night to teach you this stuff. In fact, we've got to leave the room right now. Get up, let's go. How the verse, that's how the chapter ends. Get up, let's go from here. And how close was it? I hope when we see this on the DVD, I hope that we, we see exactly. They were going out the back door where the guards were coming in the front door. How close was this? And then they're walking through this, the streets of Jerusalem. okay. After dark, nobody else is around to see them. Why? They're all indoors, taking, eating Passover. A lot of them are indoors eating Passover at the moment, and they're going through the streets. Maybe it was foggy. You know, maybe they took turns down dark alleys. Maybe who knows? And the soldiers are there with torches and lanterns. We're we're told when they get to the garden, they've got torches and lanterns. All right. So maybe Jesus and the disciples are walking without torches and lanterns, and you know, staying in the shadows, staying in the in the dark. What am I saying here? There's angelic conflict. Angelic conflict is reflected in uh, earthly affliction, persecution, martyrdom, death. We've got to be careful about what we're doing and how we're doing it. We may not have all the time we want to have. Time may be short. We're going to be under limitations. We're going to be under restrictions. We may not be able to do everything we want to do. Why not? Well, we don't have the time for it. don't have the money for it. don't have the ability for it. So we do what we can with what we have, understanding that the angelic conflict is what it is. Hmm. The ruler of the world is coming. There's somebody that runs this place, he's usurped it ever since Adam uh, relinquished sovereignty of this cosmos to him. And he has nothing in me, in Christ. Nothing in me, in Christ. And I start to wonder, is it possible? And I I still am absolutely convinced. No church age believer can be demon possessed. Because you would have to first bind the strong man. The the demon would have to first enter in and bind the strong man. And since every church age believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, it's impossible for a fallen angel or a a demon to possess a church age, royal family of God, believer-priest. And that's a concept related to this. He has nothing in me, in Christ. We have a particular ownership in Christ belonging to God the Father. And so our immunity to demonic possession is a church-age blessing, but I do chew on it every so often. Was this true in the Old Testament? Could an Old Testament believer be not only demon-oppressed, but also demon-possessed? Is it conceivable that a believe in the Old Testament, not being royal family of God, not having the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Is it possible that Satan could have some, somebody uh, apart from here it says, he has nothing in me. In me. Anyway, I'm, I'm still chewing on it. I, I, I don't think it's likely. I think that once you're redeemed, you belong to God the Father. Whether you're an Old Testament believer or a New Testament believer, And once you're redeemed, you are off limits to the fallen angels unless he gives permissive will. But Anyway, we'll get more into that when we get into Thorn in the Flesh in 2 Corinthians 11. All right. But a mature love for Jesus is going to include full awareness of the angelic conflict. A spiritual heavenly people are much better suited to engage in this realm of battle. A spiritual heavenly people are much better suited to engage in this realm of battle. Think about it. There's no Old Testament equivalent of Ephesians 6, full armor of God. <laughs> Okay, There is no Old Testament equivalent. The Old Testament believers were not told, your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and principalities and powers. They were not, now They were engaged in the angelic conflict, but they were not equipped to engage like you and I are equipped to engage in it. A spiritual heavenly people, because they were not a spiritual heavenly people. They were under a spiritual law. The law is spiritual. But they were an earthly people in the midst of other earthly nations. They were an earthly nation. They were to be holy, as God is holy, but they were not spiritual in the sense that they didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And only the believers among them had living human spirits. Alright? You understand that? the Israel's stewardship did not even require them to be saved. (laughs) I mean, the Jews were the stewards whether they were saved or not. And uh, the the, the son of the last king is going to be the next king, whether he's a believer or not. And the, the son of the high priest is going to be the next high priest, whether he's a believer or not. Their stewardship was entirely disconnected from, as we understand it, salvation. That's hard for us to focus on because we can't separate our stewardship from our salvation. You are not a member of the church, universal, until you're saved. And then, being saved, you're part of the body and bride of Christ. You have a stewardship because you are a believer. You have a stewardship. It's hard for us to relate to having a stewardship without being saved, but that's what Israel had in their earthly stewardship. And, and that's why this is also revolutionary in this chapter. And back in chapters thirteen and fourteen, when he said, "By this, all men will know that you're my disciples." That that makes no sense at all in the Old Testament framework. But for us, being saved, being disciples, having a testimony to this lost and dying world, it makes all the sense in the world. So mature love for Jesus Christ. You know, I think it's important. A full awareness of the angelic conflict. Um, A a mature love has to have that. You know, when when Jesus said, you know, if you're going to build a bridge, who builds a bridge without first counting the cost to see if you have the funds to do it? Or who first goes to war? without evaluating the strength of your enemy and evaluating your strength and figuring out, yeah, I got the, I got the, the, the powerful military here. I'm going to whoop them on the battlefield. Or you figure out uh, they've got the pretty powerful military. If, uh, if I put my soldiers up against his soldiers, we're, it's not going to work out well. <laughs> All right. And what does Jesus say about that? What does he say about that? He says that's the smart thing to do. He says that should be done. You've got to count the cost. And this is coming in the, in the imperative of being a disciple, count the cost. and don't count the cost and bail on it. count the cost and say, yes, I'm, this is the price I'm going to pay. I'm going to be a follower of Christ. I'm going to be a disciple of Christ. I've got my eyes open to what this conflict's all about. And so I need to have a full awareness of the Angelic conflict in order to develop and maintain this mature love for Jesus Christ. If you had loved me, you would have rejoiced. You don't love me, you didn't rejoice. And then the exposition of it spelled out here. All right. This is how we can love Him. This is how we can rejoice. This is how we can celebrate each day of the church age. We're one day closer to the trumpet. Isn't that awesome? One day closer to the trumpet. What's the third thing? The third thing. Full obedience to the Father's will. A mature love for Jesus Christ includes, thirdly, Full obedience to the Father's will. That's verse 31. The body of Christ, baptized in union with the Savior, is uniquely suited to manifest this demonstration of love and obedience. Not only because we love Him, not only are we going to rejoice, because we love Him, we are going to obey God the Father. And we're going to obey Him. We're going to be faithful unto death. Why? Because we love Jesus Christ. Full obedience to the Father's will. If you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. Full obedience to the Father's will. So that the world may know that I love the Father. So that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. He wasn't fleeing this... Room to get away from His death. He was going to the place where He would be arrested. He was going to the garden where He would surrender His will to the will of the Father. Being arrested in this room and being murdered in this room wouldn't accomplish the Father's good pleasure. But being in the garden and being publicly arrested, being publicly tried, being publicly crucified does fulfill the will of the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And this is this is something, you know, when, when the unbeliever, when you're able to use this as an apologetic, when you're able to use this as a part of your good news testimony, and when the unbeliever finally comes to grips with this, it's huge in explaining the plan of salvation because I've had unbelievers, you probably have too, have you ever had an unbeliever just absolutely mock the whole thing about how God died so you don't have to die? And then, you know, as if as if it's something trivial, as if it's something nonsensical, and saying, so, wait a minute, God didn't want me to die and go to hell, so God died instead of me, but He didn't stay dead, He came back alive. And, and they, they, they mock it as if it's goofy. They mock it as if it's as if it's, it's just silly. They fail to understand that they are testifying in agreement with the Bible. That the, that the gospel is, the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. But it's the power unto salvation for those who are being saved. Yes, he died. But do you understand why he died? What, what he did as he died? What was the cause of that death? The cause of that spiritual death was the imputation of all human sin. Of all human good. Of all evil. Imparted upon Jesus Christ. Judged by God the Father. Infinitely judged. Eternally judged by God the Father. See. And try to explain. He wasn't just politically executed because the, the political leaders were jealous of him. He wasn't uh, politically executed because the Roman authorities were afraid he'd lead a rebellion. No. He was delivered over by the predetermined plan of God. God the Father put him to death. God the Father called for him to be the volitional sacrifice on our behalf. That's why he died. And his spiritual death is far more important than his physical death. He says it is finished before he physically dies. And he commits his living human spirit to God the Father when he physically dies. He had already taken up his spiritual life again when he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my living human spirit. It died for the three hours of darkness. He was spiritually dead for three hours of darkness. But when it was finished, he took up his spiritual life once again with a living human spirit. And that's what he offered to his Father. Into thy hands I commit my... i got to give the Father a dead human spirit. What would that be? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And He breathed His last. It's full obedience to the Father's will. So the world may know that I love the Father. Once this is testified to, when you explain this, when you demonstrate God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and the Son so loved His Father that He obediently went to the death on the cross. Okay? You understand. He did it not because He loved you, he did it because he loved his father, and he obeyed his father, and he accomplished the eternal plan of redemption. He's the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. The world may know that I love the Father. Ultimately, we have the same testimony as well. We have the same think about you when's the last time you read Fox's Book of Martyrs? You read any of those stories. Read all of those stories. If it's been a while, reread it, okay? Every couple of years, every five years. Read it every so often. Okay? Just to remind yourself. They they testify that they love Christ <laughs> more than they love their lives. You know, they, they could recant. They could they could deny Christ and save their save their necks, but do they? No. Read the martyrdom of Polycarp. Eighty and six years I have served him and he has been faithful. Okay? Why would I deny him now? They love the Lord. And they don't just say, I love you. They demonstrate it. It's a mature love for Jesus Christ made possible because they have a full awareness of the future. They have a full awareness of the angelic conflict. They have full obedience to the Father's will. And they're able to testify to this even to their point of death. The body of Christ baptized in the union with the Savior is uniquely suited to manifest This demonstration of love and obedience. All right. Get up. Let us go from here. Now, what I'd like to do... I'll give you an introduction here to uh, chapter 15. Oops. Okay, I don't have point seven on the slideshow yet. What I would like to do is uh, go ahead and get up. We'll leave this room and we're going to walk around the parking lot. And as we walk around the parking lot, I'm going to teach you all the doctrine from uh From Chapter Fifteen, all right, come, let us go up from here. Would that be a visual aid? Okay, I won't do that, but I did think about it though, okay? <laughs> I did think about it. You would never forget. Do you remember that Wednesday morning when crazy Pastor Bob walked us around the parking lot and we just walked around and how does that work? I mean, do we all go single file? do we go two by two? Do we just kind of clump around you know how do, and how do you hear if you're kind of near the back of this of this mob, okay? And we'll walk around the parking lot. We'll take, you know, maybe we'll walk around Walnut Creek Business Park. Teach Bible class. As long as I keep the microphone within range of the receiver, we can record the message. I'm liking this more and more. And right now you're saying, I can't tell if you're joking or if you're serious, right? You don't know, do you? You think you know, but you're not quite sure. Could you imagine being my children? They don't know either. They say, Dad, sometimes we can't tell when you're joking and when you're serious. I like it. Yeah, it keeps you on your toes. Alright, let's look at verse fifteen, or chapter fifteen, and this is what we'll get into next week. Okay. Come, let us go up from here. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every or lifts up. I think is a better translation. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Remember, they're all saved. They're all believers. The the, the betrayer is gone at this point. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And how do I do that? How do I abide in Christ? And is there a difference between abiding in Christ and abiding in his word? I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Now relax, but some people use that as a lose your salvation verse. It's not a lose your salvation verse. Because we're going to see the way that you abide in him is by believing in him. That only believers are the ones that abide in him. In any event. You can also not abide in God's word. And that's a different issue. Proving to be disciples. We'll have these abiding. Menno is the verb, by the way. Abide to abide. Alright, If um, so relax. You're not going to be cast into the fire and burned. You're saved from that. You abide in Christ. You believe in Christ. If you abide in me and my, and, ah, here's an and, my words abide in you. Now we're talking. Now we're looking at a circumstance where some believers have this and some believers don't. Because some believers are not disciples. Some believers are not abiding in the word. They abide in Christ. That's an eternal position, but they don't abide in the word. The word does not abide in them. They don't give doctrine the time of day. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You have a developed um, abiding in the word of God. You have a doctrinal understanding. You have a mature prayer life. By this, is, uh, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove, demonstrate, exhibit, prove to be my disciples. Become my disciples. So not everyone that abides is a disciple. All right. You got to bear fruit. You got to bear much fruit. How much do I have to bear? Much. Okay. And if your attitude is how much do I have to so I can get by with a bare minimum, then you're not asking the right question. You're not asking how much do I have to. You're asking how little can I phrase it the right way. How much is much? And if you think you've done it, you haven't done much. That's the point. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward what lies ahead. Don't assume that you've done it. Paul said, I don't assume that I've done it. And what's he done? Founded 20 churches, wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Okay, led probably hundreds or thousands of people to faith in Christ. Have you done all that? I haven't. Okay, so um, <laughs> I, I, if Paul said he hadn't laid hold of it yet, I'm not going to say that I've laid hold of anything yet. I'm going to forget what lies behind. I'm going to reach forward to what lies ahead. Am I going to boast about 4,000 Bible classes taught? No, I'm going to reach forward to the next 1,000. I want to get to 5,000. I want to get to 10,000. All right, Colonel Theme had 20,000. I want to get to 50,000. Whatever Actually, I hope I don't live that long. Okay? Man, I want to be a pastor 40 years from now. I don't want to be here tomorrow. Okay? But still the attitude is is forgetting what lies behind. Bearing much fruit. And however much I've already borne is not much. I want to to bear more so that I can claim that I have borne much fruit. So as to prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Now is that the same as abiding in my word? Is it the same as abiding in me? What are all these different uh, uh, spheres in which we abide? We live, we remain, we dwell. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Okay? So that's where we'll be next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for Bob's safe return. Look forward to this coming summer and the the, uh, fellowship here. Father, we thank you for the Gospel of John, and in particular the Upper Room, and Garden Discourse, Father, it's uh, full of of Church Age truth that we just embrace and we thrive in, and we thank you for, Father, because we are the ones with the hindsight to look back with a completed canon of Scripture, with the uh, unveiled mystery doctrine of the Church, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to teach us all these things, Father. Uh, we we can only imagine how how uh, lost the disciples were on this night and. They couldn't understand any of this. And Peter and John couldn't even figure it out until they're standing in the empty tomb looking down at a folded face cloth. Father, they finally started to figure out certain things. Now, Father, uh, thank you that we have the church age perspective to not only learn this doctrine, but to live it in very powerful ways. Father, teach us how to love your son like you love your son. Teach us how to love your son with a mature adult love, not just a a baby love because of what he's done for us, but a mature adult love because of what you're going to do for him for all eternity. Teach us this mature love, Father. Equip us to do the greater works than these. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.